Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Hey, you! Hey, and welcome to episode 15 of One Step Beyond, a show about positively engaging with the world outside our door. My name's Tony Fletcher. In the regular world, I write primarily about music, which I also play to some extent. Tony, why, why don't we have you take the lead, and I'll uh, go behind, uh, we'll go single file, and if I see you going in a very very uh awkward direction i might say something but otherwise this will be your first natural navigation uh experience if you listen to the last episode about ollie hunter smart's walk all the way down india you may just remember that among the several things i talked about one was that i was recording just before election day hoping that u.s democracy would survive a great test and as of today which is veterans day incidentally eight days after that election it would appear that democracy has survived, well, at least one test, namely that the American people voted to keep it. But we have a few more streams to forge before we get to welcome in a new president and hopefully start repairs after four years of a national and international nightmare. You may also remember from the last episode's introduction my saying that, given that this show has a motto about getting outside your comfort zone to enrich your life, it was time I stopped just doing Zoom interviews with people who were very, very good at that and did the same thing for myself. And so, on the morning of Election Day itself, Tuesday, November 3rd, I took an early morning drive to the heart of the Catskill Mountains to meet up with a chap called Ken Posner so we could bushwhack our way up Rusk Mountain. Ken is a pretty amazing individual, as you're about to hear with a few incredible athletic achievements to his name. But we're not going to discuss those, at least not now, except to the extent that his athleticism has sent him on a steady journey towards increased minimalism, by which I don't just mean he does most of these endeavours barefoot. Ken also likes to go without food, without drink, without a certain amount of clothing, and is especially keen on going without technology. Consider it maybe trekking without tech, or natural navigation, any which way at the start of a process still ongoing, when so many of us were constantly reaching for our phones or our browsers, our TV remotes or our car radio buttons for election updates. It seemed all too ideal that Ken and I should put our devices in airplane mode and instead rely on our memory of the maps we'd looked on in advance, our internal compasses and navigation system instincts, to get us all the way up a mountain that has no discernible trail. And to do all of that in a single morning, because I had a very important music rehearsal that afternoon which I could not miss. Now, for Ken, this was second nature, pun somewhat intended. For me, though, it was a decent step outside my comfort zone. Obviously, I know the cat skills. I love them. But as you'll hear in a moment, I've done very little bushwhacking, and had certainly not been up Rusk before. 
Nor am I used to hiking these days without a dependency on technology and a bag packed with food and water. Along the way, we talked in depth about stepping back from these modern-day dependencies, which involved a deep discussion about a certain character from ancient Greece whose name I had never heard of until a few weeks back, even though he's the founder of a modern form of thinking that enters our conversation every single day. So, while the morning out was exercise, it was also education, both in the field itself, meaning navigating our way up and down the mountain, and in terms of what I learned from Ken and about Ken along the way. One caveat is that unlike the recent episodes, like when I was running alongside Bill Hoffman, or the initial documentary about our climb up Mount Kilimanjaro, Ken and I were in single file, and you can hear us trudging through the snow. Oh, did I mention it had snowed in early November? Yeah, yeah, it had snowed. We were climbing in the snow. As such, there were limitations on what my trusty Zoom recorder could capture, and if those limitations aren't apparent on the show that follows, it means I've dumped the offending audio. I am so glad that we set this day up together. It's probably one of the benefits of this show that occasionally I get to put a date in my calendar to get me out doing something new and challenging and exciting and rewarding. You might be engaged in a kind of similar endeavour yourself right now, in which case, more power to you. But if you're not, that's fine as well. Whether you're sitting back on the sofa, making your dinner, lying in bed, out on a walk, a hike, a climb, a run, a bike ride, or if you're in a car driving to your destination, well, hopefully we're all putting our technology to good use and also making the most of our natural lifestyles. And so, with all of that, I invite you to tune in and join Ken and myself as we prepare to go. One step beyond! So just one, one final thing before we uh, kill ourselves up and, and, and check we've got what we need and especially what we don't need. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are, what elevation are we at now and what is the top of Rusk? So Rusk is uh, 3686. That's a reasonable height. And we're around, call it 2200 right now. Okay. The height of Rusk puts it in a certain collector's set amongst the Catskill Mountains. There are 35... 3,500 foot peaks, which I always think is uh, rather nice of God to, to, to give us that even kind of number. Mm-hmm. And uh, a bunch of them are trails, and I've done pretty much all of those bar one. And I've had a, the, the, the printout sheet as somehow, this is amazing, mm-hmm. it stayed on my desk for about uh-huh. 15 years. Yep. <laughs> um, I have photographed it a couple of times. If somehow I still have it. I am so slow at doing what we call the bushwhacks, primarily because I enjoy what I have in my calendar. It's not, if I die without doing all 35, it won't be, you know, it, it, it won't kill me. <laughs> I'll be dead. Um, however, it would be nice to tick another one off. But these ones, they have canisters up top so that you can eventually demonstrate you mm-hmm. were there and say, I was here on this date, I mm-hmm. signed. So it's not enough for us just to say, oh, I think we summited. We have to find the canister. Right. Exactly. This is part of what makes hiking in the Catskills fun. A lot of people set out to become part of the 3500 Club, which is what I'm referring to there, where you gradually tick off all the mountains. Uh, by the way, you also have to reclimb for particular mountains in winter. Uh, so it's 39 in all. And then you get a badge or a certificate or you just get bragging rights. You would be amazed how many people take this on. 
people do ask me, bushwhacking, does that mean you're literally scything your way through bushes? I mean, a lot of people ask me that. Scything with like a saw? You mean? Well, yeah, with, with a scythe, you know, you literally no, bring the no, knife. No, no, you no, you're not allowed to do that. That would be destroying the, the natural environment. You have to fit yourself through the environment. You're not there to build a road or a trail. And uh, also with bushwhacking, you know, we're doing it in early winter and there's a sense to that because people think, oh, the summer's a nice time to, to hike and I can get, I can tick off some of those bushwhacks. But that's when the trees, of course, are at their thickest, the right. leaves are at their thickest, you're going to get waxed most by trees and you're going to struggle to see the, the, any, right. any path and underneath. You also have the stinging nettles that uh, can sting you and you have uh, cow parsnip that can give you a rash and more berry bushes with more thorns. So there's, you know, there's uh, pluses and minuses in uh, in each season, I, I like the summer. You do <laughs> I, like the I summer. like being warm and not carrying as much gear and going barefoot. Uh, and so the winter is not my favorite time of year, but then nature also makes sure you understand, if you get out there enough, you make sure you understand the, the full range of experiences. It's not all joy and comfort and easiness. It's difficulty and pain right. as well. It's so inevitable, inevitable pros and cons, but you do like bushwhacking in the summer. Yeah. Yeah, I know a lot of people Unless say... Unless I get stuck on something that's nasty. Take it from me, Ken is not the kind of person who looks like he gets stuck very easily. Anyway, by this point, we had reached an elbow in the trail. Because actually, for the first quarter mile, half mile, we were on a trail. It's one that leads up as an option to Hunter Mountain. But at this point, that trail veered off to the right, and Rusk very clearly was to our left. We would have to descend down a little bit, cross a stream, and then figure out the best way to climb it. And your listeners, if they, if they were here, they would be able to see that there's not much you can really see besides forest and the slope heading up. Now we want to stay on the ridge between two streams. There's a stream on the right and there's another one across this, this spur on the left. So it's not a complicated mission. We need to keep moving upwards. So I see this stream that people could hear. That's and, right. We're and actually cross looks that like one. it's forking here. Is that right? Is We're it forking? <laughs> we're going to cross these two little streams where they fork okay. and then head up on that spur. And we're just going to keep going upwards, making sure not to divert to either side into a stream bed. And then when we get to the top, we'll look to the left and keep following the uphill grade. And that'll get us to, um, to the top of Rusk. Given that this is a relatively common uh, adventure that people have in the Catskills, I am presuming, but I might be wrong, and the weather may help us or hinder us, that there is some kind of path that might emerge that shows people have been before us. Well, that's right. And if you look behind you, you'll see there it is. <laughs> yeah. So part of the um, techniques of navigating around here uh, in the wilderness, naturally, that is without maps, compass, uh, GPS, uh, is to look for signs of people who've been here before us. And so some of the most beautiful trails in the Catskills are the so-called social trails that have emerged on common or popular routes. And uh, sometimes they're very obvious and sometimes they're very subtle. Today we have fresh snowfall and a lot of leaves down. So the trail may be hidden for us, uh, but also we'll find that some places there's just an absence of obstructions. Those branches that would slap you in the face, somebody maybe has already snapped it off. So sometimes you can follow these trails just by being observant and very attuned to how the train in front of you is a little bit different from the train to the side. Right. So that's, that's the theme is observation and paying attention instead of just blundering along in a rush and 
Good. And dependent on devices. And to some degree, what you just described sounds a lot like tracking. I mean, it's like, you know, mm-hmm. when people track animals, you're, you're looking for signs that humans have been this way. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> great. All right. Well, so, with- Tony, why, why don't we have you take the lead? And I'll uh, go behind, uh, we'll go single file, and if I see you going in a very, very uh, awkward direction, I might say something, but otherwise this will be your first natural navigation uh, experience. Thank you, he says, <laughs> cautiously. Oh, one, one more comment. Yeah. And this is perfect timing, so thank you to the clouds that just parted. There's the sun. And so I checked... Now, again, it's not about abandoning technology. It's about using it more selectively. So I did check before we leave in between 8.30 and 9, which is about right now. The sun should be shining right in the direction we want to go. So there it is behind our shoulder, and it's disappearing again. But it's a great way to keep oriented to the extent we can see it. And now the sun will move during the course of the morning. By noon, it will be due south. We're heading north-northwest. Mm-hmm. So it won't be quite right on the way down. The sun will be a little bit to our right instead of face on because it moves. It does. <laughs> well, we move. But for, but for now, and then it's gone. Now the cloud's so thick you really can't hardly see where it was. Uh, but it does give us that orientation that we're heading up the mountain. That As we started climbing up through the snow, finding our way between the trees, me holding on to my Zoom recorder with one hand, I learned more about Ken's life. He says he wasn't always the outdoors type. He grew up in Chicago, so nature wasn't completely at hand. But it was once he got to college. And after college, he went into the army for three years. He was in the infantry. And clearly, that did something for him. I noticed he speaks in military jargon quite a lot. He describes his work these days as a corporate bee. And I guess he gets out of that hive mentality by getting outside and relying on his own instincts. To this end, he has a pretty long history of distinct achievements. In 2013, he set what was then the fastest known time for running the long path, 350-odd miles of trails that lead from Albany to New York City, or the other way, covering that distance in nine days. He then wrote a very good book about what he learned from his journey, entitled, accurately enough, Running the Long Path. The following year, Ken achieved what is still apparently the fastest known time for the Badwater Double, for which he ran the 146 miles from the lowest point on the uh, continental US, Badwater Basin, 280 feet below sea level, to the highest point of the continental US, Mount Whitney, which is at 14,505 feet above sea level. And given that you can't exactly call a cab from the summit of Whitney, he promptly ran all the way back to base covering those 292 miles in four days. He wrote an essay about that for Marathon and Beyond magazine that you can read online, and it's full of the kind of references, sources, and nutritional information you'd normally expect from a medical journal. Perhaps not surprisingly, for someone who's clearly as intelligent as they are athletic, Ken is a fan of Greek philosophers, with a special predilection for one, let's call him cult figure, in particular. So, who was Diogenes, and why should we care? <laughs> well, Diogenes was a colorful uh, character, who, uh, uh, an ancient Greek philosopher, if you can call him that. Um, his nickname was the Dog, uh, and he uh, Plato called him uh, Socrates gone mad because he, because he took many of the ideas 
and push them to the logical extreme and perhaps the illogical extreme. To summarize somewhat and spare you the sound of us trudging through the snow, Diogenes was born on the Black Sea coast of modern-day Turkey, what was then Asia Minor, in the waning days of the 5th century BC. He and his father minted currency for a living and apparently got themselves in some trouble for doing some of it fraudulently. Sent into exile, Diogenes went to Athens by way of Delphi, where he consulted the oracle, which told him to continue to deface the currency. That was, however, apparently a play on words, given that currency also referred to the norms of the times. And so, Diogenes showed up in Athens, penniless and possessionless, and proceeded to do exactly that. He lived in a tub, and he ate and slept in the square, and he hung out with the dogs. That's where he got the nickname of the dog. Uh, and he believed that he came to the conclusion that people should behave more like dogs. In other words, live naturally. And it wasn't so much an argument with technology, because there wasn't a lot of technology back then, there wasn't as much. It was an argument about sort of unnecessary customs and practices. So he thought there was no need to be ashamed of natural functions, like eating and sleeping and going to the bathroom. The dogs aren't embarrassed by that stuff. Why should people be ashamed of it? Um, so he, he uh, practiced what he preached. He lived out in the, uh, in the public square. He had uh, only four possessions. These were, these were a cloak, a satchel, a staff, and a vase, a drinking vase to drink water. One day he saw a child drinking water from a stream with cupped hands, so he threw away the vase. Oh, gosh. Um, he was more of somebody who would get in your face. So he wasn't pretending to be holier than thou. He just called out people for what he thought was unnecessary bullshit. Considering himself as but a dog, Diogenes thought nothing of urinating and defecating in public, and indeed masturbating too. I don't know that this explains why, according to history, he was captured by pirates, sold into slavery, and eventually found himself in the city of Corinth, where Alexander the Great came across him and said, I've heard of you, you're Diogenes. I will grant you a wish. To which Diogenes reputedly retorted, Then get out of my light. And as perhaps the legend of that interaction will confirm, Diogenes was a lot more influential in history than your typical town square vagabond. And, and uh, you know, he was, he's considered one of the founders of the Cynic school of philosophy. Uh, and the, the Cynics uh, are critics of the modern world and they're advocates of simplicity. Um, cynicism, I've always taken to be a negative word. A, cyn a cynic to me is somebody who's kind of, I mean, sees, sees the glass as half empty. A cynic's always looking for the, you know, the negative in the scenario. That's how I view cynicism. So I'm somewhat, it, is my interpretation incorrect? That, or? That's the modern use of the word. Cynic actually is ancient Greek for dog. So the, oh. the philosophy is named after um, Diogenes. Uh, and, and, and so it's, um, but, but even, even not going all the way back to ancient Greece, other people have pointed out that how you interpret cynicism depends on who you are. Ambrose Bierce, 
was an American author in the 19th century, he defined cynicism as, quote-unquote, seeing things as they are instead of as they're supposed to be. Well, that I understand. That's a degree... You know, so, um, uh, you know, attached to that, we might say a degree of cynicism is healthy. Um, what we don't like is when somebody becomes jaded, and then they're no longer cynical at that point. They're, they're just negative. It's additionally worth noting that while in Corinth, Diogenes passed his, uh, I guess we'll call it his philosophy, onto Crates, who himself fashioned it into what we now call Stoicism. And it occurred to me after we got off the mountain that... Uh, yeah, many of us who do yearn for a more simple life perhaps feel that if we live by that yearning, we won't make our mark on the world. And yet here we are talking about Diogenes several thousand years after his life and death as someone who is responsible for two different schools of thought. And Ken and I also got into some good discussions about Thoreau and Muir and other people who made the decision to live very, very simple lives and similarly are remembered and indeed heralded for it. Now, you may be wondering what on earth Diogenes has to do with our day on the mountain, but most likely you've connected the dots between Diogenes' simple way of living and Ken Posner's simple minimalist way of approaching outdoor adventure. Now, the Diogenes challenge is that... uh, so, uh, is that out there in in the world of sort of activities, or is it something you came up with? <laughs> well, it is, I guess it is now, possibly. It's just something I came up with, and uh, it was sort of inspired by Diogenes. It's inspired by the idea of how do you take on a, a challenge in, in the Catskills, of course, of whatever you'd like to do, but do it in a way that's more natural and less reliant on gear. Um, so that was, uh, so he was the inspiration for it. And actually, I came up with the idea and I decided that the, the goal was to do the 19, sorry, not 1909 peaks, which is a 19 mile circuit. And half of it is bushwhacking through some of the thicker, the, the fur thickets that we went around, you have no choice but to go through. And so uh, I thought the real way to do that in a natural manner was to do it without map or compass, navigating naturally, no food or water, barefoot. No food or water? No food or water and, and barefoot. So and, I, and, wow. So, so, so I'm going to interrupt and just say, was Diogenes also somebody who would habitually go without food and water of choice? I don't know. We don't know enough about him, really. Uh, but I think that was common in terms, if you talk about the Greek practice of ascesis, and it's common in many cultures to go long distances or to go without food or water or to expose yourself to the elements, the heat and the cold. Um, I think that's a common to go without food or water or sleep, right? You're pushing the envelope in your capabilities and forcing yourself to manage physical stress. And I think those themes are common around the world, right? You know, the the Japanese uh, marathon monks. Who we discussed just uh, two episodes ago, okay, actually. so they, yeah. they incorporated some of those kinds of practices, very limited food and water. I think at the end of their practice, don't they have to do a nine-day fast? Uh, or I've studied, you know, Indian tribes, like the Yorks, who have traditional forms of training that, that involve elements. Uh, you're, you're subjecting yourself to uh, stress to 
have to train yourself to, to manage this stress, to make okay. yourself stronger physically and mentally, and also to discover where limits are and where, where they aren't. So you came up with the Diogenes Challenge, um, as you said, nine peaks, and uh, how many hours and did you do it solo? Well, I should say, so I came up with this challenge. Uh, it's not nine peaks over 19 miles, and um, the uh, no food or water, uh, except what you find along the way. You're allowed to take a drink from the stream, uh, or even use your filter, if you're, uh, but not carrying water, the, um, and navigating naturally. But then I decided it was too hard. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. <laughs> Look good on paper. It looked good on paper. I was like, uh, you know, uh, I'll get around to it. <laughs> um, but uh, then my friend Cal Ghosh, uh, I mentioned it to him, and he was like, so when are we going to do it? And then I had no choice. And so this past June, Ken and his friend Cal completed their own self-set Diogenes challenge. And as Ken said, they did it without taking additional food and water. Ken did the whole thing barefoot. As a point of interest, uh, he was not barefoot on our climb up at Rusk, although he said he could have done that but didn't want to put too many stresses on himself because he was running a marathon this following weekend. And also, although Ken took a camera with him on his Diogenes Challenge, that was it for technology. Technology is great up to a point, but technology has costs as well as benefits. And if you go in a direction of always more technology you end up sort of in a narrow spot where you've reduced your exposure to the world and you're in a safe little hole and it makes you very productive at what you do at work but you lose out on so much of the rest of a natural experience and a natural life. And I'm as guilty as anybody of taking devices with me and measuring what I do and, you know, having maps and just, just being way too reliant on, uh, tech, on, on technology to do things that are essentially about getting back into nature. Exactly. And, and, and it's, uh, uh, you know, I call myself a minimalist, uh, not a primitivist. So I'm not trying to actually go back in time and reenact a paleolithic lifestyle. But uh, it's more about experimenting with the variables uh, and what technology brings you. And when you go too far, you get the weakness and the cost of technology with questionable benefits, and then you may be worse off. So, for example, uh, eating, right? <laughs> now, eating's important, and uh, today you're not carrying food with you, and I, I skip breakfast, which is my normal practice when I'm out in the field. And in days gone by, people went for days without food and they were able to manage that and deal with it. But in today's world, we have so much food and so much sugary food that most people have been, become accustomed to grabbing a snack whenever they feel the slightest twinge of hunger. And, and as a result, they lose the ability to burn fat and to manage themselves and power themselves without a constant supply of, of sugar or carbohydrates. And, you know, we see the side effects in the unfortunate prevalence of diabetes and obesity and cardiac issues and other problems, dementia and cancer. These are all theorized to be associated with too much sugar and carbohydrates. Right. 
So one of the principles of minimalism, if you're going to incorporate that into your training, is to test what you can do without the uh, power bars or the Gatorade or the, 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 the food that you need. And, you, you know, so part of your, your minimalism is let's, let's, uh, let's stay with the food part for now, the food and drink. Uh, any caffeine? I do. Uh, yeah, I do drink coffee. Absolutely. Did you have coffee this morning? I did. All right. So you've had liquid. Um, any additional water? I had a glass of water as well. Okay, but no food? No. Okay. Ken already knew that I'd had some breakfast this morning because he'd asked me. And although I knew that part of our day ahead was meant to be predicated on the idea of fasting, amongst other minimalism, I have to be honest and say that, knowing that I had this important work in the afternoon, I didn't want to just find myself utterly exhausted, empty, and potentially having bonked. I call this show One Step Beyond, but it's also just taking things one step at a time. And as Ken admits, the different restrictions he puts on himself, going barefoot, going without food and water, going without navigation tools, are all just different stressors that combined can make for a greater whole. So there's a special thrill when you put yourself a little bit farther out there and you discover your innate capabilities because there's a thrill to being strong not not in a macho sense but in the sense of being in control and having the capability to manage yourself and that's I think nature programmed us to to want to be like that and to feel excitement and enthusiasm as we get stronger and better at, at, at things so I, I think these capabilities all sort of you know on the one hand they can seem very hardcore and machoistic um, or on the other hand they just develop naturally out of the enthusiasm of being outdoors John Muir was as close to an ultra runner as there was in 19th century America he used to go out for days on end with almost no food bring a crust of bread with him he didn't wear a coat in the fall in the mountains he covered huge distances I mean he ran he didn't to divide between running and walking. He just moved at a rapid pace, up or down or sideways. And so, and he did that out of a great feeling of love and excitement and awe for nature, which is where he saw the, you know, in his words, the hand of God. Mm -hmm. So all this stuff is inherent in us if you just give it a chance. And so, you know, your your show is very interesting uh, because this need to step out of the comfort zone. We were talking about technology and how it shields you. So if you were to go back in time uh, to our distant ancestors, there was no comfort zone. <laughs> right? Yeah. The comfort zone only exists today because we have the luxury of technology and gear and resources. And it's all great. And it makes us extraordinarily productive but now you have a comfort zone and you can get stuck in it exactly i'm going to make a personal observation here which is the sun just came back out and there's snow on the ground and we didn't bring our sunglasses well we didn't bring our sunglasses I, that sort of occurred to me a little late now but uh, what is occurring to me is just how beautiful it is and i think a lot of people might just think, oh, hiking in winter in the snow, that's inherently 
more dangerous, less fun. I don't know, it's just the beauty of the snow on the ground, feeling your feet kind of crunching it, especially when the sun comes out, is uh, there's a reason that a lot of people do love hiking in winter. Now, it's not that this area is particularly beautiful, it's just natural, right? I'm not talking of which, is that deer prints, deer? That looks like deer prints. Yeah, okay. Yeah, carry on, please. So this is a natural environment. And for many people, a natural environment creates a, a feeling of joy. So my point is that an unnatural environment does not create a feeling of joy. So the office, the shopping mall, even home, these are unnatural environments and they may not provide us the stimuli that that we need to experience life fully there's a lot of truth to this for sure when we traveled as a family four years ago i was aware how locals would come out to climb mountains to go anywhere for a view to get into nature whenever they could there's clearly something innate about the human experience where this calls to us we seem to have the same appreciation for sunrises and sunsets and just vistas of beauty. Anyway, all of that said, we were enjoying our own beauty and I did observe that Ken had got a backpack just in case. I guess he had uh, backup supplies just in case we really needed something. I was keeping everything in my pockets, including the spikes for our shoes, which we actually didn't need. We were both wearing Innovates and they're pretty well suited for mountains and I guess we both had experience of staying on our feet. To that end, there was something else we didn't use either. We're not doing this with poles despite the steepness. Well, uh, poles, yeah, people have used staffs uh, for a long time. Uh, I have a mixed attitude towards poles. I, I don't like to use them um, because for me they become crutches. I put too much weight on them and lean on them and, and I'd rather use my balance. So one of the things that, that barefoot teaches or hiking in rough terrain, it, teaches, it improves your sense of balance and agility. And so I have two poles with me all the time. They're my left to my right arms. So if I need them, I can bend down and um, put a hand on the ground. It's a little bit cold with the snow. Uh, so I don't like to use the poles, but I do use them. I was hiking in the Sierra this summer. In the where, sorry? I was hiking in the Sierra. Okay. I, I went out and did the John Muir Trail and uh, I used the poles. So I was carrying a pack, which was heavier than I'm I normally carry and it's help they're helpful particularly going uphill as far as clothing for the hike I've gone pretty good over the years at figuring out what I should wear in cold weather and that actually means not too much because you don't want to work up a sweat all that said I felt the need to take off an item after a while and stop to do so so did Ken difference was he didn't have anything on underneath I should point out to uh, listeners, uh, you're not going to get away without a photo. When I said we were going to just strip down a bit, you just took everything off your top layer. You're now wearing a backpack and shirtless. That's right. And, you know, um, the... Uh, you know, it, part of, you know, historically, you, you know, Indians used to, at least in some tribes, go about shirtless. That was their uniform. And it's an interesting... Um, to me, it's interesting because what I want to do, what I want to do by going shirtless is train myself to um, to manage the discomfort of a chilly breeze. 
uh, but not put myself into hypothermic conditions. So if it gets too cold or too windy, and of course the wind just picked up, I can put all sorts of warm things back on. But I, I do like going shirtless and I feel like there must be a thermostat located somewhere on my chest and my body actually knows what to do in cold air. It knows how to warm itself. There's some people who are really, really good at managing the cold. There's a Dutchman called the Iceman, Wim Hof. And just about to ask you if you if you followed oh, him. Oh sure. Chances are you've heard of Wim Hof as well. I'm sure you've seen his pictures. He's the Iceman. He's the guy who climbs mountains in shorts. Uh, takes long, long ice baths, holds the world record for time under ice. Looks like he's doing very well for himself and his philosophy has made him a lot of money too, which is great. Doesn't seem to be spending it on clothes though. <laughs> so training in the cold is another element of a, you can call it minimalistic or whatever you want. It's another way to train yourself to manage stress and manage your body safely. Um, what's nice about training in the cold, or using the cold as a training stressor, is it doesn't put any pressure on joints and muscles and tendons and ligaments. See, there's a lot of ways to train yourself. Running is a great way to train yourself, but you can overdo it, right? Yeah, of course. So there's all these different ways that you can run. You can run for distance. You can run for speed. You can run barefoot. You can run in the heat. You can run in the cold. You can go without food. You can go without water. And you, you pick these strategies depending on what you're trying to do and what you feel you should train yourself uh, for. But they all, they all follow a similar pattern, which is you discover that you can do with less than you thought. You can be more self-reliant than you thought. And there's a great joy and thrill of, of, of self-reliance. When, when you do these things. And with that, it's back to navigation. So we're at a point where I'm not totally clear. You've got me in the lead still, and I'm not totally clear. Um, going uphill is just right here, which seems logical. You know, there was a part of me that could follow over, but I'll be going over to the other stream, and I think you told us we don't want to cross that stream right now. So is that correct? I think we've got a choice here. We can see where the trail shows up again. Right now it's disappeared under the snow. Uh, or we can just stay to the right and keep heading uphill. Uh, we got to step over some logs, but... So when you say you, we can see the trail, are we talking over here? Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, you can see it just winding yeah. its way okay. up Okay, we're looking at the same thing. All right, that's good news. To be clear about it, when we're talking of a trail here, we just mean some form of clearing through the woods. So my instinct is to be, <laughs> is to be cautious and stick with um, a trail, which would suggest we sort of head left at this point to cross the creek and then pick up that trail that we can okay. see. Let's do it. By the way, the sun has come out yeah, it's... and it's still behind us. Now it's going to be moving over to our left, so yeah. we don't want to keep it exactly behind us, but it's going to be broadly behind us and we're going uphill, so yeah, we're, we're, we're executing according to plan. You're doing a great job, Tony. All compliments appreciated. And while I really do encourage you to get out and do something similar, it should be said at least both of us have some experience in the mountains, in snow, and on this kind of terrain. Here, for your listeners who can't see what we're doing, the, the, the ground is littered with rocks and down trees and all sorts of debris. And so each step becomes a little bit of a judgment. And it's not always stable, particularly with snow. So we're looking for the easiest way to move across this terrain without trashing ourselves. Right, in other words, just saying a compass will send you straight uphill. And we don't need to go straight uphill as long as we know 
you know, it's almost like, it's almost a bit like skiing. You've got a fall line, but you zigzag around that fall line. And I guess to some degree you're suggesting, you know, you've got a, a, an upline, but you, you crisscross it to just do switchbacks. That's to avoid. right, and yeah. you want to, uh, there's, there's some basic math uh, involved, but it, it depends how much steep you want to do. And steep in the Catskills, again, you'll never need ropes. It's not like Alpine, Alpine mountaineering. But going up steep cliffs, coming out of stream beds, we have tilting, slippery rocks covered with moss and dead leaves. That's, <laughs> that's not necessarily uh, an easy time. And uh, you'll have a more graceful journey if you avoid those kinds of obstacles and the compass just takes you straight. Okay. From experience, are we, uh, we, was that part of the steepest of it we're just finishing off now? That's part of the steepest, but there's also a band of ledges around the summit, so we'll okay. have to weave our way through some slabs. Okay, so we got another another tough. But section. this is still steep in front of us. It'll be like this until we get onto the crest. Okay. Of the ridge, you often find the Catskills. They start out not too bad, and then they have the steep section, right. and then they roll over at the top. So we're still in the, the yeah. middle of the S, if you will. And sure enough, so we got some ledges here. I can see the terrain is changing somewhat. My ledges. These are sandstone slabs that are broken apart. And it's not that they're uh, huge cliffs or anything like that, but we're getting into a zone with a lot of large broken rocks. So it's a little bit of scrambling. It's slower. It's slippery. It's, it's challenging in a really annoying kind of sense. But as we were saying, it's the kind of challenge that can burn up your concentration and your sense of control. And so that's why... The, the key is to go slowly and look around and say, okay, here's this pile of rocks in front of me. What's the easiest way to go? The gentlest way on myself. Because <laughs> when you're scrambling and your feet are slipping and you're getting mad, that tires you out as much as moving your feet, if not mm -hmm. much more. Yeah, for sure. So, let's see. We're not, I'm not looking at the altitude reading on my watch. Oh, but I can see green ahead of us. That's right. fur and spruce. So we know we're getting into the boreal zone. And that's typically pretty close to 3,500 feet. Okay. And I know it is on west because I saw the mountain on the drive in. So that tells us we're on the final push to the top. As it turned out, we were probably a little below 3,500 feet. Uh, given the amount of climbing we found we still had left after this. One of the things about uh, going up these mountains is, you you know, it's the old, uh, it's just around the corner. You do really tend to think you must be almost there. So let's put you in charge to find the canister. So go up and look for little trails that will lead you to it. We're not there yet, but we're getting close. We missed some of the garbage over there. I don't literally know... I can guess where on the map we are, but I don't know for sure. So I'll be interested to see the track later, because this is a different feel for the last time I was up here. Right. Last time, I, the times before, I followed the herd path that weaves right between the slabs. But this time we went around to the left. Well, you're so, telling me that, and I can still see elevation ahead of us. Yeah, that's what you're going to look for, Tony. Just keep going up, and as we get onto the top, the up is going to become more subtle. Right. Right? So you're going to be looking for inches instead of feet. For all Ken's experience and expertise, we had but reached another full summit. Ahead of us, 
I see off to our left, I'm, I'm looking at what looks like a, a wall of slabs, like uh -huh. you say, not insurmountable. But as I look over to my left here, Ken, I see they end. It, it looks uh -huh. that way. Let's do it. Okay. So, yeah, um, we'll come up and then around. So I'm going to take the lead again. And trust you'll correct me if you need to. Fortunately, that proved unnecessary. Well, you picked a very nice spot through the slabs. Good job. We should be close to a peak, and yes, this feels like it's yeah, opened up. Here would be the challenge if we were going up an endless ridge, we might get to level spots, and it would just be a pause on the way, still going up. Yeah, we and this, where we're going, so. there's still a little bit more endless sort of full summits. Well, we said there was that was the one set of flaps you had to get through, and then there was another one, and now here's a third. I mean, the Catskills are great at that because you, you know, because they're um, all all below the tree line. You often just think, "Oh, I'm rounding off. We're here," and you can't see the right. summit. You see some flat up ahead of you, and you think that's it. For your listeners, the challenge again is not that this is uh, a naked, exposed peak in the Alps or the Sierra, but there's the, you have the challenge of piles of boulders and rocks with thick vegetation. So it makes it hard to see where you're going and you've got challenging uh, places to step. You're never not, you never got to show what's underneath the feet. That's the sort of unique challenge of the terrain. Yeah, and we're definitely up against some slabs and this time I think we're gonna, I'm angling to the right of them but at the same time, I think we may just need to go up this time. I see a path up here. Actually, it looks like the possibly the path. I think, yep. Third time lucky. Well, there's a, some kind of animal has decided to take it. Okay. That's the only footprints I see. And they're disappearing now. I'm also feeling the wind That's right. and the chill more, which suggests again that we, we're starting to expose ourselves. We didn't follow the exact compass route to the top. We steered to the right, and now we're making our way back to the left. And we did that to avoid the stupid Okay. Now, off to our left, it's going to go down a little bit. So, in terms of finding a canister and a summit, my personal sense is it should be around here. And I'm going to spare you the squeal of delight. I found it. I found it when I found it. Um, listening back, it really didn't feel that dramatic, to be honest, and didn't justify the squeal. But whatever. It's a nice feeling to spend a couple of hours climbing up in the snow. And then you finally do realize you must be at the summit. And somewhere there on the trunk of a tree, you find attached to that trunk the orange canister that says Rusk Mountain. And now you are here and you've achieved your goal. Well, you are now being filmed at the canister. I'm just going to film our last few steps in because it's quite, it's quite a nice satisfaction. This is it. Uh, now there's a problem that sometimes these canisters get frozen shut. <laughs> Which is probably just as well that I'm filming. I don't want to break it from the bracket. Wow, I didn't think about that. I think if you get a photographic um, shot, that would be good. It says Russ. I'll get a picture of you too, so we'll be able to document this when it comes time to uh, to get you your 3500 patch. 
That little digital sound that you may have heard? That was my phone video switching off. Ironically, without taking technology with us, we'd have had no proof that we had actually made it to the top of this bushwhack, the canister being frozen shut. There was, without any doubt, quite a satisfaction at doing this. I mean, it's not on a par with climbing a Kilimanjaro, but in terms of actually being able to do something without navigational tools, without real guides, without the technology, without maps, without compasses, just following your instincts, yeah, it felt good. Now all we had to do was get down again. So let me yeah. give you a quick test. Suppose we weren't going to follow, we didn't have footprints. Yeah. How, how would you orange yourself? Because uh, you could turn around and there are actually trails going that way yeah. and to East Rusk and, and over to Evergreen or Pack Saddle, whatever it is that way. There's at least trails going at least three different directions, if not um, four. And um, so how would you orient yourself to start heading back if you didn't have the footprints? Um, I would know that the sun is moving from uh, east to west and um, it's not going to get high up in the sky at this time of, of year. I suspect it's late morning. Um, the clocks change, which means that if it's, if it's 11 o'clock now, it would have been 12 o'clock two days ago, and the sun is going to be largely due south. Um, if I was doing this without you, Ken, I would have taken, hopefully, hopefully if I was prepared, a good look at the map to figure whether... Well, you told me we were heading north-northwest, so... We are not looking to go absolutely due south, so I'm going to go back downhill, keeping the sun to my right. Exactly. And in a way, depending on how long it takes us, the more we go down, the more the sun should be sort of a bit further to our right because the sun's going to be moving west. So that would be my philosophy. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's good. All right. Should we uh, should we head back and get, yeah. out, get out of the wind? Let's do that. Because uh, among other things, you're shirtless. Yeah, so I like to keep moving. The journey down was uneventful. Interestingly, if there hadn't been snow, it might have been a lot more difficult for us. We just followed our footprints. And we were back down in, uh, well, I don't know exactly how long it was because we weren't looking at our watches. But the total journey, the total time on foot, was somewhere between three and a half and four hours. We covered something like 4.6 miles, we reckoned. And, you know, we climbed 1,500 feet and descended it again. So Tony, you led us up, look at this, there's nothing to see here, it's just forest. You led us up to the top of the mountain. I gave you a couple pointers here and there, but you just, you just uh, took us straight to the top of a mountain where you can't see anything but tangled forest. So I think it was a successful natural navigation it exercise. Was, it was highly, highly successful and I wanted to do this, I wanted to just do something where I stopped talking to other people who test themselves and just do uh, uh, something that tested me a little bit. Uh, I don't think I could have done that without your, your help there, though. You have, you, you, A, you've been well, on you this before. Want, and... You would not want to advise anybody to wander out into the woods without a compass or a GPS and a bushwhack for the first time ever. So I was there, you know, as a backup. But, um, but I think what you saw is that if you pay attention and have a rough plan, it's not as daunting. It wasn't as hard as it might have been. But without paying attention and without a plan, you could have one could have panicked and wandered off anywhere and still be out there. That can happen. People can get lost in the Catskills, particularly when bushwhacking. Maybe there'll be a future episode about survival skills. For now, though, call it trekking without tech or natural navigation or even minimal mountaineering. Any which way, it was mission accomplished. It was time to get back into our cars and go off to our jobs, which would inevitably involve technology. 
I'll just end up by saying, you know what? We, we pulled that off perfectly. Thank mm -hmm. you for your guidance. Thank you. We're in a great place. Good. We're back at uh, lunchtime. And uh, have yourself a wonderful day. Thank you, Tony. Same great. to you. All right. Thank awesome. you, Ken. Bye-bye. You can find Ken Posner on the web at his blog, thelongbrownpath.com, where you will find many, many an excellent article about his various outdoor adventures and philosophies. You can also find links there to buy his book, Running the Long Path, and we'll put all of these in the show notes, along with a few other resources that Ken has recommended for us. This episode of One Step Beyond was written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music in this episode was revealed in this nature by Noel Fletcher. The theme song One Step Beyond is by Madness, used with their permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. You can reach out to us at onestepbeyond at ijamming.net I-J-A-M-M-I-N-G.net you can also find us on all social media. Just search One Step Beyond Podcast. And our website is buried over at acast.com. All these links will be supplied in the show notes. And if you are listening online, please know that you can subscribe and download on just about every podcast platform known to man. It's always great if you want to leave a positive review. And it's especially great if you want to reach out. Whatever you're doing in the world, peace.